Hi everybody, it's Michael. Next up in our Halloween collection, I suppose it's my turn. I've chosen The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson, which is one of my favourite old stories. So sit back, relax, maybe take it in a couple of parts, because it's quite a long one, and enjoy. Every night in the year, Four of us sat in the small parlour of the Free Trade Inn at Berwick. The Undertaker, and the Landlord, and Fetis and myself. Sometimes there would be more, but blow high, blow low, come rain or snow or frost, we four would be planted in his own particular armchair. Fetis was an old drunken Scotsman, a man of education obviously, and a man of some property since he lived in idleness. He had come to Berwick years ago while still young, and by a mere continuance of living had grown to be an adopted townsman. His blue camlet cloak was a local antiquity, like the church spire. His place in the parlour at the free trade, his absence from church, his old, crapulous, disreputable vices were all things of course in Berwick. He had some vague radical opinions and some fleeting infidelities, which he would now and again set forth and emphasise with tottering slaps upon the table. He drank rum, five glasses regularly every evening, and for the greater portion of his nightly visit to the free trade, sat, with his glass in his right hand, in a state of melancholy alcoholic saturation. We called him the doctor, for he was supposed to have some special knowledge of medicine, and had been known upon a pinch to set a fracture or reduce a dislocation. But beyond these slight particulars, we had no knowledge of his character or antecedents. One dark winter night, it had struck nine some time before the landlord joined us. There was a sick man in the free trade. A great neighbouring proprietor suddenly struck down with apoplexy on his way to Parliament and the great man's still greater London doctor had been telegraphed to his bedside. It was the first time that such a thing had happened in Berwick, for the railway was but newly open, and we were all proportionally moved by the occurrence. He's come, said the landlord after he had filled and lighted his pipe. He, said I. Who, not the doctor? Himself, replied the host. What's his name? Dr. McFarlane, said the landlord. Fetis was far through his third tumbler, stupidly fuddled, now nodding over, now staring mazily around him, but at the last word he seemed to awaken and repeated the name, McFarlane, twice, quietly enough the first time, but with sudden emotion at the second. Yes, said the landlord, that's his name, Dr. Wolf McFarlane. Fetis became instantly sober. His eyes awoke, his voice became clear, loud and steady, his language forcible and earnest. We were all startled by the transformation, as if a man had risen from the dead. I beg your pardon, he said. I am afraid I have not been paying much attention to your talk. Who is this Wolf McFarlane? And then when he had heard the landlord out, It cannot be. It cannot be, he added and yet I would like well to see him face to face. Do you know him, Doctor? asked the undertaker with a gasp. God forbid, was the reply, and yet the name is a strange one. It were too much to fancy too. 
Tell me, landlord, is he old? Well, said the host, he's not a young man to be sure, and his hair is white, but he looks younger than you. Oh, he's older though, years older, but, with a slap upon the table, it's the rum you see in my face, rum and sin. This man perhaps may have an easy conscience and a good digestion. Conscience? Hear me speak, you would think I was some good old decent Christian, would you not? But no, not I. I never canted. Voltaire might have canted if he'd stood in my shoes, but the brains, with a rattling fillip on his bald head, the brains were clear and active, and I saw and made no deductions. If you know this, doctor, I ventured to remark after a somewhat awful pause, I should gather that you do not share the landlord's good opinion. Thetis paid no regard to me. Yes, he said with sudden decision, I must see him face to face. There was another pause and then a door was closed rather sharply on the first floor, and a step was heard upon the stair. That's the doctor, cried the landlord, look sharp and you can catch him. It was but two steps from the small parlour to the door of the old free trade inn. The oak staircase landed almost in the street, and there was room for a turkey rug and nothing more between the threshold and the last round of the descent, but this little space was every evening brilliantly lit up, not only by the light upon the stair and the great signal lamp below the sign, but by the warm radiance of the barroom window. The free trade thus brightly advertised itself to passers-by in the cold street. Fetis walked steadily to the spot, and we, who were hanging behind, beheld the two men meet. As one of them had phrased it, face to face. Dr. McFarlane was alert and vigorous, his white hair set off his pale and placid, although energetic, countenance. He was richly dressed in the finest of broadcloth and the whitest of linen, with a great gold watch chain and studs and spectacles of the same precious material. He wore a broad-folded tie, white and speckled with lilac, and then he carried on his arm a comfortable driving coat of fur. There was no doubt but he became his years, breathing as he did of wealth and consideration, but it was a surprising contrast to see our parlour sought, bald, dirty, pimpled and robed in his old camlet cloak, confront him at the bottom of the stairs. McFarlane, he said somewhat loudly, more like a herald than a friend. The great doctor pulled up short on the fourth step as though the familiarity of the address surprised and somewhat shocked his dignity. Toddy McFarlane, repeated Fetis. The other man almost staggered. He stared for the swiftest of seconds at the man before him, glanced behind him with a sort of scare and then in a startled whisper. Fetis, you... I said the other, me, did you think I was dead too? We're not so easy shut of our acquaintance. Hush, hush, exclaimed the doctor, hush, hush, this meeting is, is so unexpected I can see you are unmanned. I hardly knew you, I confess at first, but I'm overjoyed, overjoyed to have this opportunity. For the present it must be how do you do and goodbye in one, for my fly is waiting and I must not fail in the rain, but you shall let me see Yes, you shall give me your address, and you can count on early news of me. We must do something for you, Fetis. I fear you're out at elbows, but we must see to that for old Lang Syne, as once we sang at suppers. 
Money, cried Fetis. Money from you. The money that I had from you's lying where I cast it in the rain. Dr. McFarlane had talked himself into some measure of superiority and confidence, but the uncommon energy of this refusal cast him back to his first confusion. A horrible, ugly look came and went across his almost venerable countenance. My dear fellow, he said, be it, be it as you please, my last thought is to offend you, I, I, I would never intrude on one. I, I will leave you my address, however, I do not wish it. I do not wish to know the roof that shelters you, interrupted the other. I heard your name. I feared it might be you. I wish to know if after all there were a god, and now I know that there is none. Be gone! He still stood in the middle of the rug, between the stair and doorway, and the great physician, in order to escape, would be forced to step to one side. It was plain that he hesitated before the thought of this humiliation. White as he was, there was a dangerous glitter in his spectacles, but while he still paused uncertain, he became aware that the driver of his fly was peering in from the street at this unusual scene, and caught a glimpse at the same time of our little body from the parlour, huddled by the corner of the bar. The presence of so many witnesses decided him at once to flee. He crouched together, brushing on the wainscot, and made a dart like a serpent striking for the door. But his tribulation was not yet entirely at an end, for even as he was passing Fetis, clutching him by the arm and these words came in a whisper, and yet painfully distinct. Have you seen it again? The great rich London doctor cried out aloud with a sharp throttling cry. He dashed his questioner across the open space and with his hands over his head, fled out of the door like a detected thief. Before it had occurred to one of us to make a movement, the fly was already rattling towards the station. The scene was over like a dream, but the dream had left proofs and traces of its passage. Next day the servant found the fine gold spectacles broken on the threshold, and that very night we were all standing breathless by the barroom window, and Fetis at her side, sober, pale and resolute in look. God protect us, Mr. Fetis, said the landlord, coming first into possession of his customary senses. What in the universe is all this? These are strange things you have been saying. Fetis turned towards us. He looked us each in succession in the face. See if you can hold your tongues, said he. That man McFarlane is not safe to cross, and those who have done so already have repented it too late. And then, without so much as finishing his third glass, far less waiting for the other two, he bade us goodbye and went forth under the lamp of the inn into the black night. We three turned to our places in the parlour with the big red fire and four clear candles, and as we recapitulated what had passed, the first chill of our surprise soon changed into a glow of curiosity. We sat late. It was the latest session I have known in the old free trade. Each man before we parted had his theory that he was bound to prove, and none of us had any nearer business in this world than to track out the past of our condemned companion, and surprise the secret that he shared with the great London doctor. It is no great boast, but I believe I was a better hand at worming out a story than either of my fellows, and perhaps there is now no other man alive who can narrate to you the following foul and unnatural events. In his young days, 
Bettis studied medicine in the schools of Edinburgh. He had a talent of a kind, the talent that picks up swiftly what it hears and readily retails it for its own. He worked little at home, but he was civil, attentive and intelligent in the presence of his masters. They soon picked him out as a lad who listened closely and remembered well. Nay, strange as it seemed to me when I first heard it, he was in those days well favoured and pleased by his exterior. There was at that period a certain extramural teacher of anatomy whom I shall here designate by the letter K. His name was subsequently too well known. The man who bore it skulked through the streets of Edinburgh in disguise while the mob that applauded at the execution of Burke called loudly for the blood of his employer. But Mr K was then at the top of his vogue. He enjoyed a popularity due partly to his own talent and address, partly due to the incapacity of his rival, the university professor. The students at least swore by his name, and Fetis believed himself, and was believed by others, to have laid the foundation of success when he had acquired the favour of this meteorically famous man. Mr K was a bon vivant as well as an accomplished teacher. He liked a sly illusion no less than a careful preparation. In both capacities, Fetis enjoyed and deserved his notice, and by the second year of his attendance, he held the half-regular position of second demonstrator, or sub-assistant in his class. In this capacity, the charge of the theatre and lecture room devolved in particular upon his shoulders. He had to answer for the cleanliness of the premises and the conduct of the other students. It was a part of his duty to supply, receive and divide the various subjects. It was with a view to this last, at that time very delicate affair, that he was lodged by Mr K in the same wind, and at last in the same building with the dissecting rooms. Here, after a night of turbulent pleasures, his hands still tottering, his sight still misty and confused, he would be called out of bed in the black hours before the winter dawn by the unclean and desperate interlopers who supplied the table. He would open the door to these men, since infamous throughout the land. He would help them with their tragic burden, pay them their sordid price, and remain alone when they were gone with the unfriendly relics of humanity. From such a scene he would return to snatch another hour or two of slumber to repair the abuses of the night and refresh himself for the labours of the day. Few lads could have been more insensible to the impressions of a life thus passed among the ensigns of morality. His mind was closed against all general considerations. He was incapable of interest in the fate and fortunes of another, the slave of his own desires and low ambitions. Cold, light and selfish in the last resort, he had that modicum of prudence, miscalled morality, which keeps a man from inconvenient drunkenness or punishable theft. He coveted, besides, a measure of consideration from his masters and his fellow pupils, and he had no desire to fail conspicuously in the external parts of life. Thus he made it his pleasure to gain some distinction in his studies, and day after day rendered unimpeachable eye service to his employer Mr K. For his day of work he indemnified himself by nights of roaring blackguardly enjoyment, and when that balance had been struck, the organ that he called his conscience declared itself content. The supply of subjects was a continual trouble to him, 
as well as to his master. In that large and busy class, the raw material of the anatomist kept perpetually running out, and the business thus rendered necessary was not only unpleasant in itself, but threatened dangerous consequences to all who were concerned. It was the policy of Mr. K to ask no questions in his dealings with the trade. They bring the body, and we pay the price, he used to say, dwelling on the alliteration. Quid pro quo. And again, somewhat profanely, ask no questions, he would tell his assistants, for conscience sake. There was no understanding that the subjects were provided by the crime of murder. Had that idea been broached to him in words, he would have recoiled in horror. But the lightness of his speech upon so grave a matter was, in itself, an offence against good manners, and a temptation to the men with whom he dealt. Betis, for instance, had often remarked to himself upon the singular freshness of the bodies. He had been struck again and again by the hangdog, abominable looks of the ruffians who came to him before the dawn, and putting things together clearly in his private thoughts, he perhaps attributed a meaning too immoral and too categorical to the unguarded counsels of his master. He understood his duty, in short, to have three branches, to take what was brought, to pay the price, and to avert the eye from any evidence of crime. One November morning, this policy of silence was put sharply to the test. He had been awake all night with a racking toothache, pacing his room like a caged beast, or throwing himself in fury on his bed and had fallen at last into that profound, uneasy slumber that so often follows on a night of pain. When he was awakened by the third or fourth angry repetition of the concerted signal, there was a bright, thin moonshine. It was bitter cold, windy and frosty. The town had not yet awakened, but an indefinable stir already preluded the noise and business of the day. The ghouls had come later than usual, and they seemed more than usually eager to be gone. Fetis, sick with sleep, lighted them upstairs. He heard their grumbling Irish voices through a dream, and as they stripped the sack from their sad merchandise, he leaned dozing with his shoulder propped against the wall. He had to shake himself to find the men their money. As he did so, his eyes lighted on the dead face. He started. He took two steps nearer with the candle raised. God almighty, he cried, that's Jane Galbraith. The men answered nothing, but they shuffled nearer the door. I know her, I tell you. She was alive and hearty yesterday. It's impossible she can be dead. It's impossible you should have got this body fairly. Sure, sir, you're mistaken entirely, said one of the men. But the other looked at Fetis darkly in the eyes and demanded the money on the spot. It was impossible to misconceive the threat or to exaggerate the danger. The lad's heart failed him. He stammered some excuses, counted out the sum and saw his hateful visitors depart. No sooner were they gone than he hastened to confirm his doubts. By a dozen unquestionable marks he identified the girl he had jested with the day before. He saw with horror marks upon her body that might well betoken violence. A panic seized him and he took refuge in his room. There he reflected at length over the discovery that he had made, considered soberly 
the bearing of Mr K's instructions and the danger to himself of interference in so serious a business, and at last, in sore perplexity, determined to wait for the advice of his immediate superior, the class assistant. This was a young doctor, Wolf McFarlane, a high favourite among all the reckless students, clever, dissipated and unscrupulous to the last degree. He had travelled and studied abroad. His manners were agreeable and a little forward, and he was an authority on the stage, skilful on the ice or on the links, with skate or golf club. He dressed with nice audacity, and, to put the finishing touch upon his glory, he kept a gig in a strong trotting horse. With Fetis he was on terms of intimacy. Indeed, their relative positions called for some community of life, and when subjects were scarce, the pair would drive far into the country in McFarland's gig, visit and desecrate some lonely graveyard, and return before dawn with their booty to the door of the dissecting room. On that particular morning, McFarlane arrived somewhat earlier than his wont. Fetis heard him and met him on the stairs, told him his story and showed him the cause of his alarm. McFarlane examined the marks on her body. Yes, he said with a nod. It looks fishy. Well, what should I do? asked Fetis. Do? repeated the other. Do you want to do anything? Least said, soonest mended, I should say. Someone else might recognise her, objected Fetis. She was as well known as the Castle Rock. Well, hope not, said McFarlane, and if anybody does, well, you didn't, don't you see? And there's an end. The fact is, this has been going on too long. Stir up the mud and you'll get Kay into the most unholy trouble. You'll be in a shocking box yourself. So will I, if you come to that. I should like to know how any one of us would look, or what the devil we should have to say for ourselves in any Christian witness box. For me, you know there's one thing certain that, practically speaking, all our subjects have been murdered. McFarlane! cried Fetis. Come now, sneered the other, as if you hadn't suspected it yourself. Suspecting it is one thing, and proof another, yes I know. And I'm as sorry as you are that it should come to this, tapping the body with his cane. The next best thing for me is not to recognise it. And, he added coolly, I don't. You may, if you please, I don't dictate, but I think a man of the world would do as I do. And, I may add, I fancy that is what Kay would look for at our hands. The question is, why did he choose us two for his assistance? And I answer, because he didn't want old wives telling tales. Join us soon when we come back for part two of The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson. The reading in part one was by me, Michael Park. The music was by Mitch Bain. You can find out more about Scotland on our website, scotland.bequiet.media, and we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Scotland, a Scottish history podcast.